Welcome back to another installment of the podcast for cultural reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute. This is Worldview Wednesday. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time. Our host for today's episode is Joseph Boot. Well, welcome back everyone to the podcast for cultural reformation. This is Worldview Wednesday and I'm your host, uh, Dr. Joe Boot. And joining me again, uh, as always, in the studio is uh, Nathan Oblak and Ryan Eres. We're here again in the Knox Cellar and looking forward to an exciting program today because after a hiatus last week, we are back today with Jonathan Burnside, I believe. Is that right, Nathan? Yeah, that's right. Actually, uh, Jonathan was on two weeks ago uh, with us, and last week we had uh, one of our fellows, Tim Dieppe, with us. And we've got uh, a lot of positive feedback about uh, both those episodes. It's brought about a lot of really great conversations and seems to have cleared up a lot of misconceptions uh, related to theonomy. In some respects, it's interesting how the couple of weeks ago when we had Jonathan uh, taking us deeper into biblical law and its relevance and application, and then last week we get Tim Dieppe mm-hmm. uh, actually talking about the ruling in Scotland mm-hmm. Uh, for the, the the reopening of the churches, and he explained how actually appeals were made in that case by the QC all the way back to the 16th century, and this long history, this long tradition, actually, of Christian law, of biblical law, uh, that asserted the independence, uh, the independent jurisdiction of the life of the church and mm. its, its separation from from the state, which is kind of an interesting illustration of what what we were we were talking about uh, the, the the previous week, and a bit more of what we'll be talking about this week. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of those uh, appeals to biblical law have set very helpful precedents uh, in the UK, and it just doesn't seem like we uh, have the ability to lean on those here in Canada. Yeah. Well, hopefully we were, will uh, in the days ahead perhaps see some of the, uh, the the courts taking a bit more seriously these comparable jurisdictions. But anyway, let's get back into our um, our subject for today because uh, we are back with Professor Jonathan Burnside, who's joining us again. And one of the things that we want to focus on this week, especially in light of what we've heard uh, in last week's episode, is the the fact that biblical law is something that isn't to uh, to be placed behind a glass case and merely observed and admired, it's something that actually uh, needs to be applied. Biblical law, Professor Burnside says very helpfully in, helpfully in his book, God, Justice and Society, is uh, a journey into wisdom. And uh, when you look at the history, actually, of, of uh, the Western legal tradition and our Western legal heritage, you see how it's very much a journey. Um, and that's the whole idea, of course, of tradition and the uh, the legal inheritance uh, that we have and legal precedent is it's a journey. And I love this way, actually, that, uh, that Professor Burnside speaks of biblical law as this journey into wisdom because it's about, in the end, it's ultimately about application. Mm. So let's get back into it with Professor Burnside um, um, right now and, and continue this conversation. So, Jonathan, um, that's... That's helpful because what you're saying really is there is an abiding normativity, whatever the historical context, and biblical law, the resources of biblical law demand application in all of these changing circumstances historically. We've seen that you've, you've said, you know, very matter-of-factly and, and, and I think powerfully, 
biblical law is relevant. That's that's that shouldn't even be a debate. It's not a debate. You've also said biblical law, by its very character, um, has application politically. So there is there's an aspect that it's political, and you've touched on uh, Alfred the Great there. Um, and uh, many people, I mentioned him just in passing last week. Many people um, are not aware of the the nascent character, as you say in your book, of biblical law in Western history and in the Western legal tradition. And you teach um, biblical law at Bristol University. Uh, you um, are, are helping people understand. In fact, I've heard you say at times that um, in many respects, even our current engagement uh, with law is an indirect engagement with biblical law, biblical law anyway, because we're in, we're, we've been persistently repealing it for the last 30 or 40 years. So do you want to just say a little bit more about the fact about this issue of um, the, the, this, this unawareness that people very often have, that often Christians have, who think that biblical law is some archaic, bygone, historical artifact and aren't even aware that the very engagements that we have today in political life are direct or indirect engagements with biblical law and always have been since Alfred the Great. Can you give us a, point out just a few high points of, of, of that kind of engagement historically, the way biblical law has shaped Western political life and how we're often unaware of it? Well, I suppose uh, since you mentioned Alfred, as I mentioned, Alfred, I mean, pre, I think the thing that sort of strikes me as you begin to try to tell that story is um, how, uh, how hard won it was. You know, think about this art phrase, how, 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 how the West, you know, Western civilization was won. Um, and, uh, and the answer is with, with great pain and effort. And it's so sad, really, that, um, that all, you know, so many of these things that we uh, take for government take for granted the idea about, um, you know, the government shouldn't act arbitrarily, uh, that claims of government and to be legitimate must be grounded in justice, uh, that government is under the law, uh, not above the law, uh, and, um, you know, so on and so forth. Um, you know, we just take it all so much for granted. We forget that all of these things have had to be fought for, and they've had to be fought for against over and against a prevailing um, worldview which is antagonistic to that. So if we go back to someone like Alfred um, operating, um, or and underneath those who came before him, operating in the context of um, paganism um, in, in, in um, Britain, as then was, um, and let's take it back to the early mission of um, Augustine, uh, being sent over by Pope Gregory the Great, um, being sent the mission to the Angles, uh, as Pope Gregory called it. So he thought Angles was angels. Um, and uh, and as and when they were preaching the gospel, this is making the point that you can't separate gospel from evangelism from biblical law, um, part of that message was to the tribal chiefs and the ordinary people, is that you've got to give up all of your um, pagan practices around marriage um, and who you're having intercourse with, and you've got to get with this Christian idea about um, marriage to one person for life, okay? 
Um, and that caused instant ructions with the tribal chiefs. Because if you were in um, polygamous relationships with multiple children, then this was going to determine succession. This was going to determine the dynasty of the royal house. And this is basically, you can see, you see the, you know, the, the church then already becoming involved in politics through the mere act of preaching the gospel. Because immediately they're having to say, this union is legitimate, but that union isn't legitimate. Therefore, this child um, can be the next king, but that child can't be. Do you see how immediately political the whole thing becomes? And of course, the missionaries were coming on, huge parents, kind of like, well, then we're not going to talk about that. And we, and we have this extraordinary, this is the reason I bring it up, is that we have these, this extraordinary correspondence from Gregory the Great to uh, Augustine saying, hold the line, hold the line. Um, you, have, um, you have to teach um, the churches, uh, the Christian orthodoxy on marriage in a pagan context in uh, 6th century England, right? Um, so, um, um, so, so, so the point I'm making is these kind of things which then became very current and very normative, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, you know, were all fought over. They were all fought over. And, 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 and I think what one of the early gems, I think, that we see being on Earth around about this time is this idea about um, conciliar government. And I think one of the uh, things I'm, I'm, I'm writing about at the moment uh, is how uh, the crime under the Bible seeks consensus. That is the model of good government. Um, and, and I think uh, politics at its best is that. That, that is it in a nutshell. The crying under the Bible, um, seeking consensus. That's what you see in Alfred Stombach in his law code. Um, the uh, crying is under the Bible, and there is Alfred with his Bhutan, um, seeking to harmonize, integrate um, Anglo Saxon practice with the Bible. Um, but, you know, he's not doing it in the kind of, um, you know, this is what I say to Alfred. Uh, this is. Um, seen as a collective, he's taking people with him. He's translating it into Anglo-Saxons, so people can all get up to speed. So, um, so really, it's sort of an answer to the, the question. And I'm sorry, it's a rather roundabout way, but we have to approach these things particularly. Um, is uh, I, I think actually that we just have a major task of education uh, ahead of us. Um, we need to educate people um, about how. Uh, Western civilization, um, you can do, um, you're familiar with the Canadian context, I'm familiar with the English one, uh, is how the roots of our beliefs about what constitutes good government, not extremism, but good government is rooted in the Bible. Um, and um, and uh, because uh, we are frequently told the opposite, um, there is a major task of recovery and education, which is why um, I do what I do in terms of research on biblical law and its, and its reception history and, and its application, um, because that is the historical record. Oh. Well, it's, it's, I think this is a really important piece, because of course you could, and I know your new book is going to be tracing from way back with Alfred 
um, through English history and through the Puritans on to uh, and, and beyond. Um, and it's all the way up, in fact, to uh, Marx and Stalin. Right. And what's quite interesting is that Stalin and Lenin um, did not have debates about whether biblical law applied because um, uh, Lenin articulated the um, basic principle of socialism, which was from each according to his work to each according to his need, which is a conflation of Exodus uh, and Paul's updating of the Thessalonians. Um, and that was plastered in posters all around Moscow um, and the Russian Orthodox leaders said that they didn't really object to that, but they just wished that Lenin could have said, could have attributed the source. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Stalin constitution, likewise, um, and Stalin studied theology. So here we have a situation where um, uh, uh, some of the um, most um, aggressive atheists of the 20th century didn't have a problem with quoting and applying selectively and for state propaganda purposes. But nevertheless, they were they knew and applied biblical law in the public square. Mm-hmm. And from that point of view, their position was a good deal more biblical from a certain kind of perspective than many people who would argue um, that it has no validity whatsoever. Yeah. And I think that there is an issue about you know, something really must be wrong if we cannot look back in our societies and see how much the Bible and biblical law has shaped us down to its deep roots. Yeah. If we can't look back and see that, something must be wrong. Yeah. And and that's the the bit that I'm interested in. Yeah. yeah. So that that's just um, a couple more thoughts to 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 to. to to pull out of you here a little bit uh, before we wind this up, um, Jonathan. So um, there are those who will say, yes, um, Professor Burnside is right. Biblical law is really important. And oftentimes um, these people are very genuine. They're very sincere. They love God's word and they want to be faithful um, in applying it. They, they've got a desire to, to say, we, we, we've got to take God's word, all of it seriously, and we want to apply it. But they've not always done it wisely. And sometimes it's, you know, pick a text here, select a text here. Um, the sort of pick and mix kind of variety of positivization. There doesn't seem to be much method or system to, 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 to what they're doing. Their intentions are usually good, but the method is weak. Um, and uh, and so they take biblical law seriously, but as you've sometimes said, Jonathan, maybe they don't take it ser- quite seriously enough. So how can you just help us a little bit um, on this question of, of method in how we begin to apply biblical law without getting into too much of the academic detail and, and spoiling people reading your book? But... <laughs> Well, I think the very simple thing is, well, well, it's like the saying goes, you know, a text without context is a pretext for a proof text, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, and I think really um, the, the question about method is always about um, understanding uh, what is, why the text is where it is, why it's being said in a way in which it's being said. God doesn't waste his breath. As Proverbs says, as apples are gold and seven settings are silver. 
pay very close attention to the setting and the silver. Um, and really, um, I mean, a lot of what I write um, is uh, very much focused uh, on um, making sense of the laws in their social, cultural, and literary context. And that's just basic spade work that every preacher knows that they have to do. Every leader of a Bible study, every everybody reading the Bible aims to do that. Um, and I think if we're getting into questions of application, then obviously the onus is on us to really make sure that we look at that side of things very seriously indeed. Um, and, and so in the context of biblical law, um, what that means is looking at how the laws are all tied together. Um, it's not just one thing followed by another thing followed by another thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely shocking when you pick up uh, uh, even Christian commentators on um, the Book of Numbers, for example, uh, and they just describe it as being some kind of, it's like a junk room, you know, of stuff all piled high all over the place, no particular order, with patronizing comments being made, you know, about the fact that, well, these are all very traditional people and didn't really think systematically, unlike us. Um, so, you know, it's just all a bit disordered. You know, <laughs> that is not how it's written. Um, and uh, and what underlies those sorts of approaches is basically to say, oh dear, what a shame. God didn't really give us the Bible in the right way, does he? So we really have to come along and help him out uh, and reorder it all and reorganize it all. And it'll all be so much better and make it all so much easier to apply. Where would we be without well, those dispensationalists? Well, Keep going. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so this is, this is what I mean about method. You know, method is, um, and, and this is a really key point, and this is the point that I, I think that a lot of um, in, in, in material that I have read, um, where, where I think it goes wrong, um, is that it assumes that um, God has not spoken to us in the right way, so we have to sort of boil off abstract principles or ideas, you know, and then condense them all off somewhere else, um, and then we've got something which we can apply. The problem with that is, that um, we are not then applying the Bible. We are applying something that we have derived from the Bible, which may well have some kind of usefulness, but it's still, but by definition, you're doing something else. You've conceded that you're doing something else. You're applying something from the Bible. It's construction. Um, and, uh, and really, um, in, in my work, what I have always tried to get to grips with is the literary presentation of the text in their in the form which they are in, um, and uh, I don't want to go into all, all kinds of different details. But um, uh, Jews understand this very well, um, and they, they understand that um, you know letters have their place, words have their place, things which have certain sorts of association have their place, and so they they see. Um, uh, Quran and, and, and the Hebrew Bible generally as a great sort of resonant echo chamber where you say one thing and all kinds of, you know, things bounce off the walls uh, which you're expected to catch uh, and, and, and be able to attend to. Um, and uh, so, I mean, I mean, to give you just one example, uh, we have something like um, the fifth um, commandment, you know, honour your father and your mother that your days shall be long uh, in the Lord that, that the land you... Um, in, in, in the land that the Lord your God has given you. And then later on in Deuteronomy, 
uh, you have Moses saying, justice, justice only shall we pursue, that your days may be long uh, and, uh, and, you know, uh, live long. Are in two completely different um, parts of the Bible. They're actually in different, um, you know, in, in different sections. But um, you, we are expected to make connections between those two things. We're expected to think, ah, there is a resonance between these two different texts. What could it be? I mean, I often sometimes give that to my students as an example and say, okay, right, so this is all about, this is, you know, this is what Torah is. It's about, um, uh, it's, about um, it's about wisdom. Um, uh, what, um, you know, what, is, what is the relationship here? And then we can start getting into all sorts of issues around uh, the fact that um, uh, the family, the, um, the, the, the family unit, uh, is the place where justice is done, perhaps, because it's the building block of local government, which it was in biblical Israel. Uh, it's the place where you learn to honour um, other forms of political authority, because even parents are a form of political authority, which the state can't intervene in. And all, all, all sorts of things can come out of just those juxtapositions of texts. So if that's what you're doing with texts, which in the literary form are related, even though they're in different corpora, how much more important is it, is it to look at the texts which are right next to each other? Mm -hmm. um, and so the point I, I have to make is um, the start of the Covenant Code in Exodus um, begins with laws and slavery. Why? Uh, because that's how... Um, the uh, um, Ten Commandments start, and Lord God brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So slavery is put front and centre because that's their own experience. But it's followed by laws of asylum. Mm -hmm. Thinking, why? Why has got anything to do with laws of asylum? Well, because the Israelites themselves were not only escaped slaves, but they also sought asylum successfully in Sinai after being after escaping from Egypt, um, because in Egypt they were accused of killing an act of God for which they weren't responsible. And that's the paradigm case, which is presented for asylum mm -hmm. at the start of the Covenant Code, which is completely atypical of other cases of asylum in the ancient areas where people are running away from a war or something like that. So the point is um, uh, the texts are, or the, the way they work, uh, is their narrative and their construction, their paradigm cases based on uh, things which are central to Israel's lived experience, um, which is why the laws are practical and not utopian. So the point is we have to do that imaginative work, which we do whenever we read the Gospels, for instance, of, 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 of thinking ourselves into uh, the... Um, uh, why and, 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 and all the different problems uh, that are presented when we're presented with any text and group of people doing things very different to what we would normally do. Um, we have to uh, engage um, with our imaginations, um, but also um, in the utmost um, fidelity uh, to the text uh, to reconstruct what it's saying about the radical choices that the people are being called to make in terms of how to organize, organize their society. And I think that once we start getting into it, 
on that <laughs> particular vector, that particular angle, um, then I think um, we are, we're, we're in a position um, when we can start engaging credibly um, with the politics of our day. Yes. But if we're just looking for quick and easy smash and grab answers, the problem is that can all too easily reflect our political prejudices. We all have them, uh, and we have to allow for those to be um, uh, challenged and confirmed um, by the by biblical text, um, because then otherwise, you know, we will be in that situation where, as you said, um, uh, our hearts may be in the, in the right place, uh, but um, uh, our brains, and our, but our, our brains weren't. It's a heart. It's a heart of um, submission to the text, and then taking hermeneutical responsibility to the uh, and, and and approaching it with fidelity. I think so, and and the thing the thing I really want to stress here is that um, I mean uh, I mean you've been kind enough to uh, mention my work, but I, th- I think this is really important to say is that I don't see myself uh, as somebody in commas with a line to push. I'm not promoting a method. I'm not promoting a particular view. Um, uh, I'm, I'm simply trying to give a, a, a I'm trying really to, get, to impart a sense of hope and optimism uh, that this is something uh, that we, um, it would be a joy for us to engage with. It would bring life to us. It would bring life to our communities and our societies. Uh, um, there are lots of inspiring tools that we can recover for this very important uh, work of cultural and social engagement. Um, and that is something that we need to do collectively. Yeah. And the part of the fact that we're having this conversation is it's, the, it's not even about trying to persuade somebody of a, of a particular political point of view. I'm not, not interested in that. But I am interested in, in, in this being a collective uh, engagement, but a disciplined one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that takes me back to that central image about good government, the, um, the crying under the Bible, um, seeking consensus. Uh, and the church and individual Christians and church leaders have a vital role uh, to play in that task of good government. So of all the programs that are available out there this summer, why should someone choose the Runner Academy? Well, I think if you're looking for uh, canoeing and rock climbing, uh, the Runner Academy is not the primary program that you should choose. We do have a a lot of fun and there are activities here to, to get involved with. But the primary focus of the Runner Academy is to inspire and encourage thoughtful Christians who are emerging leaders to be prepared intellectually for the challenges of our cultural moment. And as you look around what's going on in Western culture, the decline of our culture, the collapse of our historic Judeo-Christian values, uh, the challenge to basic civil liberties, freedom of speech, challenges in the area of human identity, human sexuality, challenges facing challenges facing us in law and politics and so on. They are so acute, uh, they're so prescient uh, that really this is uh, an opportune moment. It's such a time as this to actually be equipped to think Christianly in terms of the kingdom of God about what it means to apply the claims of the Lord Jesus Christ to every aspect of our lives, not just our personal life, but our professional life, our cultural life, our educational life. Because the the decisions we actually make now, um, the way we think about our lives now, 
uh, is actually a plan for the future. You know, it was Karl Marx who recognized that the true goal of philosophy should not be simply to understand reality, but actually he said to change it. And although we don't agree with Marx, he was right about uh, ideas having consequences. Mm -hmm. The goal of right thinking is right living. And uh, the, the, it is actually transformed people that will transform cultures. So what we're wanting to do at the, the Ezra Institute with the Runner Academy is see people's lives impacted and transformed by this immersive experience. And I would want to suggest that there isn't anything quite like it in Canada. 12 days of time together to eat, think, live, spend some time in the gardens, take in lectures, ask questions, all around the issue of the Christian life, thinking Christianly and applying a biblical world and life view to the cultural challenges of our time. And I think that's a unique offering, and that's why I think people should make it an absolute priority to be here. Mm, great. So if there are people out there that are interested, Joe, where can they go to find out more? So visit uh, ezrainstitute.ca, uh, and there on our website, people can learn about all of our programs, and they can register for the Runner Academy. Great. Thanks. So, Jonathan, um, what would you then say to those who say, well, look, uh, Professor Burnside, it's all very interesting about biblical law, but look, we've got natural law. We don't need biblical law. Man's reason and natural law is enough. And again, you know, recognizing that we don't have... Um, uh, three more podcasts uh, to let you develop this point, as I know you've, as I know you've done, and in fact debated uh, and been in discussion with people like David Van Drunen, um on on this on this issue. But 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 give give our listeners just one or two pointers when they get the rejoinder when they're trying to help people understand the the the, the relevance, the beauty, the power, the imaginative vision of biblical law for society. Get this retort that well, look. Natural law and man's reason. That's what we need because they're really universal. Can you... See, so you some... made an interesting move there, Joe. You said natural law and man's reason uh, as if, um, you know, the two are interchangeable. And indeed, in more recent times... That's the attitude, that has the posture. Been the, yeah, that, that has been the philosophical move. The, the move has been uh, to say that uh, laws of nature are those which can be derived from reason and therefore, uh, if it's not something that everybody can all agree upon universally, um, then, uh, then it's not, um, then it's, um, not natural law. But of course, as you know, um, uh, that has not been how natural law has always been thought of. Um, natural law, um, uh, was for, um, much of its, um, early life, uh, regarded as, um, as being uh, synonymous yes. um, with biblical law, um, not least in the sense that um, even the things that could be derived from reason had to be related teleologically towards a purpose that was good, and that good purpose is defined in biblical terms. Um, so even there, what we know where reason is doing a lot of the spade work, um, it's still, you know, it's all couched um, within a biblical normative framework, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I think I'm thinking about people here like like, like Aquinas, for example. Um, uh, but of course, you know, my answer to that really is to say is that um, Western philosophy has created a problem um, that just simply doesn't even exist as far as the Bible is concerned. 
Um, and uh, that's uh, chapter three of the book, by the way. But the short answer to it is read Psalm 19. Psalm 19 um, starts with um, heavens declare the glory of God and then goes straight on uh, to talk about um, the law of God and, and, and Torah and, and, and the covenant. Um, and, uh, and then it goes on to talk about the psalmist and response. And those three poetic stanzas are all um, written differently, poetically. There are three different things, which is why um, lazy um, writers have just assumed that they were written by different people, but it was an editorial God's job. Um, but in fact, what it's saying is that uh, these things are all related. There is a parallel between the, the, what the, heaven, the speech that the heavens are telling and the speech given by God at, at Sinai. Uh, and those things uh, uh, together, and, and that um, when the psalmist responds to the spoken word of God, because it's the spoken word of God, the revelation which saves, it's not the speech of the heavens, not natural law that saves. Um, but when the psalmist responds and enters into what God says and enters into covenant with God, he is finds himself at home with the universe so that the words of his mouth and the meditations are joined with the speech of the heavens to the glory of God and everything is integrated. So there in the Bible, you have an idea that natural law and biblical law and revelation are not opposed to each other. Um, so, uh, so I think we, we need to get our heads around what Psalm 19 is saying. Um, in terms of the in terms of the, the problem that we have constructed for ourselves, in terms of paying off um, reason and, and so on, um, it's interesting to look at where some of that thinking comes from. And uh, if we track that wolf back to its lair. Um, we would we might find uh, Thomas Hobbes' Leviathan interesting um, because uh, the book Leviathan is structured around this sort of argument. So books one and two is basically Hobbes saying, oh, isn't it wonderful we've got all of these new mathematical sciences uh, and, you know, we can use reason to, you know, make sense of the universe. Uh, and that's parts one and two. And then the second half of the book is, now let's talk about the Bible, and we'll see uh, that um, scripture uh, supports um, what has been derived from reason, okay? Um, and then, of course, over a period of time, this, of course, is exactly what has happened um, to readers of Leviathan, is that people go, oh, we're not really interested in what the Bible has, is what he says about the Bible. We're just going to look at what he says in in, 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 in terms of natural law, because natural law is now doing all the work. Um, and uh, what uh, Hobbes does is um, because um, he is committed to, this is where questions of method are important, because he is committed to uh, a, a mathematical empirical model, uh, and his mathematical model um has to be based on things that everybody can agree. And he thinks that the one thing that everybody can agree on is a set of ideas about human nature uh, and that we all live in a state of fear and fear or violence. That is the one thing that we can all agree upon. This means that everything that he has to say about natural law uh, ultimately is only concerned with human self-preservation. 
It has no other object. He can't then tell you what government is for. There is, and so Leviathan is not interested in good government. Leviathan is only interested in stability in order to preserve for self-preservation. That's why it must be absolute. That's why there can't be any debate about what justice is. The just law is whatever um, Leviathan says it is because you, the citizens, are given him all the power. So, you know, you have to agree to his rules. Um, so what you get with Thomas Hobbes is this moment when natural law loses all connection with the Bible, with Christianity, even though the other half of the book is actually supposed, supposed to be backing it up. It's not doing anything of the kind, um, just pulling the wool over people's eyes. Um, uh, and so natural, having laid an axe to, the, to that great uh, oak of Christian natural law jurisprudence, you see, um, you can get into a situation where the church is now subservient to natural law. Not natural law being subservient to the church. The church is now subservient to natural law. Uh, and, uh, and so really from that moment on, you can start to see the rise of the absolutist nature of ideas about things which, were, which are supposed to protect us from each other, like, for example, human rights become a new kind of form of absolutism. But, it's, you know, but, 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 but this um, notion that um, uh, somehow we're all just kind of focusing on appeals to reason, no, Hobbes makes it very clear that what appears to be a rational deduction, not a rational deduction at all. In his case, it's based on an emotion. It's based on fear. It's based on his fear of, of social disturbance. So actually, what is presented as being scientific is actually primal. Uh, it's actually, um, he's actually, I mean, he, he says that the problem by religion is all about the passions. But his entire project is founded upon the passions, it's founded upon fear. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm sorry if I've gone into a bit too much detail, but the point, I, the point I'm wanting to make here is that when we say, oh, um, uh, you're talking about um, revelation. I'm talking about um, natural law um, as something that is um, uh, a product of, of, of reason. No, um, claims to neutrality are never neutral. It's all got to come from somewhere. Um, and, um, uh, and we are all fallen uh, in terms of... Uh, where our minds take us to, uh, and the things that we project upon onto ideas about God and other people. Um, so we have to we have to regard with I think a great deal of scepticism uh, claims to objectivity, which are based on reason, um, and uh, we are living in a scientific age where all sorts of empirical claims are made uh, in the name of science, um, but. We can ask how scientific are they? So simply setting up a scientific paradigm is is not um, uh, in itself uh, a guarantee of neutrality. But of course, um, uh, I am I myself am committed to rational debate and rational argument because that is um, that, that is that is a, a, the, the biblical um, worldview, and and again, that's at the heart of consensus, because you can only seek consensus by um, appealing rationally. But 
it's reason under the Bible. Yeah. It's not reason supplanting the Bible. Yes, yeah. there's a logical normativity to the creation order. I mean, I like to talk in terms of creation law and inscripturated, you know, the, 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 the special revelation and, and creation itself are a unity. And I think uh, one of the helpful things you said there, Jonathan, is that in, in, in a certain respect, and maybe we'll close just on your comments on this, one of the, the wonderful functions of biblical law, it seems to me that you're saying in part, is it both protects you from rationalism, that sort of desire to reduce everything to the mathematical, um, the, most, the, 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 the most easily um, reduce everything to the, the, the smallest common denominator and then rationally reconstruct it um, after whether it's fear or whatever other construction one has in mind. But it also protects us then from what emerges from that kind of rationalism, which is absolutism, uh, statism. It seems to me that biblical law, you're saying, keeps the state itself in check. Do you want to comment on that? Oh, yes, com- yes, completely. Well, and, and we only have to look at Deuteronomy for that. Um, Deuteronomy uh, puts the king under Torah. The king, uh, who is appointed from your brothers, uh, uh, must write out the law. Uh, and uh, he must read in it all the days of his life. Um, uh, so uh, the biblical idea about government is, is humble government uh, because the king is under the law, uh, and that extends through into the New Testament uh, where um, we speak truth to power because government is under God. Um, so, uh, yeah, and um, so I, I think that the things that we, we, we've talked about are um, the controversial issues, they are certainly very difficult issues, uh, which is why political philosophers and theologians uh, have engaged with these questions deeply for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, it's why we have every encouragement ourselves to engage with these questions also. Um, but it's something that we uh, do collectively um, uh, coming from a variety of different um, political positions um, under the Bible uh, to seek a consensus um, about how to govern wisely and well. Yeah. Well, Jonathan, uh, we're uh, really thankful for um, these uh, uh, sessions, this opportunity to chat with you. Um, we really value your friendship. I've had the privilege of knowing you now for, for many years and working with you both in Canada and in England. And the resources that you have given to the church, to Christians, to believers, on understanding this issue of biblical law are their their treasures. And um, we know that we're really looking forward to the new work that's going to be coming out in due course that you're going to be uh, uh, unveiling in 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 uh, in the course of time. But uh, God, Justice, and Society is the book that's already available. Aspects of Law and Legality in the Bible. That's Oxford University Press. We'd really encourage people to. Uh, engage with that and um, read it to, to really begin to understand the the presence, the relevance, the power, and actually the beauty of biblical law as it re-envisions our world and life view, which is where we we started. We're grateful that you you uh, uh, served with us as a fellow of the uh, of the institute in biblical law, and um, we're deeply grateful that you've given given up such a big chunk of your time today uh, to be with us. So we we'll, we we'll look forward to having you back again soon. Jonathan uh, will be uh, joining us for the Runner Academy this year, virtually, um, because of um, 
various restrictions that we will not rehearse on this podcast. Uh, uh, but um, th- that's the nature of the uh, of the beast. How apropos. That's the nature of the beast this year. Um, but uh, we'll look forward to having Jonathan teach on 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 some of these issues at the at the Runner Academy, where you'll be able to engage him with questions as well. If you if you're able to uh, to join us at the Runner Academy this year, so this has been the podcast for Cultural Reformation, reminding you that from him and through him and to him are all things. It's passed down as a prophecy every year about this time.